0: I titled this lecture uh, Creativity, Can Computers Cut It? And it sort of leaves the obvious question, cut what? Um, Well, uh, I'm based in Norwich, of course, so um, cut the mustard, I think, would be the appropriate uh, thing to say. Those of you who don't recognise this, this is the flag of Norfolk, ladies and gentlemen, um, which is mustard yellow on the left-hand side, to remind myself that mustard is inextricably linked with us uh, Norfolk folk. Um, now this lecture is has a starting point um, of talking about creativity and creativity is a very sort of problematic area i think particularly for computer scientists computer scientists are rather fond of reasonably precise definitions of things and um let me give you a quote Edsger Dijkstra, who's one of the sort of uh, nobility of computer science said um Asking if computers can think is about as sensible as asking whether submarines can swim. And um, I sort of feel the same thing about creativity. Uh, It's really not very well defined, even for humans. And it seems to cover a very wide range of activities, which range from the very, very mundane, indeed, to the quite extraordinarily sublime, and uh, that's going to be a challenge. And we're obviously going to be talking about machines that are programmed by people to be creative. And there's this other sort of nasty business of where does creativity uh, of the programmer end and where does the creativity of the machine begin? Well, I'll try and give some indications of that as we go through. I, I have nothing very intelligent to say about that, I should say. That's, that's for you folks to, uh, to think about. It's going to be quite acute this issue over the next uh, few years it's probably analogous to the question of where does life begin you know which which so exercises um, Americans when they're thinking about that issue um, and you know where does creativity begin always a great uh, is a great problem and I'm not even sure that there are certainly people who would claim that computational creativity cannot actually be really uh, creativity in the sense that it, 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 we, we might Uh, mean it in everyday conversation furthermore I am going to delineate creativity a little bit and what I'm going to focus on in this lecture are those little blobs on the left hand side of your uh, slide sort of what Victorians might have called the arts I suppose linguistic visual and musical arts Um, the one that I'm very interested in is creativity and problem solving finding new solutions to something I have almost nothing to say about that Um, I think it's a most interesting area I don't know of any there are some minor um, there are there are some minor progress in that regard I can think of a few sort of basic uh, problem-solving uh, systems but I'm not sure they solve things in a particularly creative uh, creative way so that big blue blob very interesting area I'm going to leave it for the time being um, uh, partly because I don't want to give a lecture about philosophy, I don't know much about philosophy, and partly all the good examples are over in those other blobs, and that's what I want to talk about uh, today. So let's start with um, linguistic arts. Um, in the previous lecture, I spent some time looking at methods of doing text processing, and I don't want to repeat that material this time. And you don't need to uh, you don't need to have done the whole series to understand this lecture. Um, So I'm going to gloss slightly lightly over some bits and that's because if you are interested you can just spool back and look at the previous lecture on text processing which will talk about some of these these activities and the the sort of modern triumphs that we're talking about really in the linguistic arts are all due to one bit of technology uh, which is the the deep neural network and um, I'll try and indicate where, where where these take place but just to give you a sort of sense of history I think what I'll start with is computational humor and um, there are conferences on computational humor I have to admit I've, I've never been to one I suspect that they might not be the biggest laugh that you've ever had in your life um, and they have a sort of fairly noble um, history people were sort of working on people are working on computational humor for probably oh 30 years off and on um, and um I, I've just picked two example systems which are relatively well-known in the literature. Um, both of them focus on uh, sort of stylized jokes uh, like riddles and puns. Okay? And the good thing about that from a computer science point of view is you can generate rules for uh, generating uh, riddles and, and puns. The first system was called JAPE and its successor was known as uh, Stand Up. And so uh, JAPE... Are these riddles, questions to which you get surprising answers? What do you call a strange market? And then you're going to get the an answer in a moment. And what do you call a washing machine with a September? Is the, is, so the idea is that these are more sophisticated versions of humour. Well, let me give you the answers and see if we get a huge belly laugh from the audience. Uh, I suspect not, uh, but let's just give it a go. OK, what do you call a strange market? A bizarre, bazaar what do you call a washing machine with a september an automatic washer i thought that last one was quite good um, now of course um, so both of these have been tested against humans to see how funny they are you'd expect systematic uh scientific work in this area and um jape i seem to remember was tested um so that the test was um did people find this more funny than text that was not Designed to be funny, and the answer is yes, they did, but was it as funny as jokes told by humans no it wasn 't well that, I think that 's hardly a surprise uh, listening to that a uh, stand up if I remember rightly was a system that was designed to help uh, well it, it, it possibly was designed to help um, cognitively impaired uh, children um, who had some trouble um, processing jokes. so the advantage of these systems is they can tell joke after joke after joke after joke. And, you know, parents and carers eventually get sort of defeated by the the boredom of having to tell the same joke again and again and again. Um, So that's the sort of base level that we've got in a creative text. I'm calling it creative in the sense that these jokes are not fed to it. These are jokes that are created uh, from rules. Um, Both of them use a description of the English language called WordNet, which is a uh, some sort of semantic list of all the words in the English language, and uh, they're able to look for patterns and generate jokes that people haven't seen before. It's rather primitive, and I think it's fair to say that in the early 2000s, certainly I, and perhaps quite a few other people, have reached a, a sort of a feeling of gentle despair about um, generating te- meaningful text. Um, this rule based approach really wasn't going to get anywhere. Uh, we couldn't, we can't design rules for every single bit of humour. You know, I mean, it's sort of complete madness. Um, even stylized humour, like um, Cooperisms. Um, do you know about Cooperism? Cooperisms are jokes of the type invented by um, uh, Tommy Cooper. You know, uh, like um, uh, I went down the corner shop to buy some corners. They didn't have any. You know. Uh, I went to the paper shop, it blown away. You know, so that, that, they're sort of cooperisms. They've got this surprising ending. They're now practised by um, the great humorist Tim, Tim Vine, and they're slightly formulaic. Um, so we reached a sort of state of grim despair, really, thinking, well, we, we won't really do very much. This rule-based thing doesn't work. And the machine learning techniques that we had really weren't very effective with text. Well, all of that changed with uh, two technologies... Um, One of which I talked about previously, which was a technology called Word2Vec, and that was a neat way of getting words into numbers. Uh, So as soon as you've got numbers, you can do some machine learning. And the other one was um, the idea of a recurrent neural network. That's where you feed the output back into the input, so you can get this infinite history of uh, what's happened. That's important for text. The trouble with text is if you have a sliding window going over the text, you're obviously only looking at a few words And really, you want to have a sort of memory of what happened previously. So you can use those to analyse text, but you can also drive them backwards to create text. And they're now uh, operational. So, um, for example, let's pick an example. This is um, some work done by um, Automated Insights. Um, Automated Insights are a commercial company who work with, amongst others, Associated Press. And you feed in numbers, in this case uh, sports game scores, and you generate stories. And so the – well, I'm sure you can guess which one – well, let, let's just do a quick straw poll with the physical audience. i w- always wished I could do this with the electronic audience. I can't – so physical audience. Do you think the story on the left was computer-generated or the story on the right was computer-generated? So, would you like to raise your hand if you think it was the story on the left that was computer generated? Uh, I'm, and the story on the right was computer generated. Uh, oh, it's Even Stevens, and some people don't really know. Um, I'm surprised at that. Okay, it's the story on the left that's computer generated. Um, now, it's a bit strange to read, isn't it? Because, firstly, it's about American football, and... Mostly the physical audience is a British audience and, we don't, and generally we don't know anything about American football. And secondly, uh, there is a particular way of writing a, a, American journalistic style which takes you a, a little bit of time to get your head around. Uh, American journalists are very fond of using these very sort of c- compound nouns and they have a very, uh, also a very abbreviated uh, journalistic style which I find hard to read. But I, I'm assured by my American friends that this is perfectly reasonable uh, text on the left. The one on the left is quite factual, I would say. And the one on the right is, is written by a professional sports journalist of the same game. The one on the right has lots of commentary and um, drawing analogies. Uh, sorry, um, drawing, he's trying to draw out a story about some people failing by looking at several stories across a number of different uh, news sources. And so that's a sort of typical human uh, endeavour, isn't it? You know, making up a story on the basis of thin evidence. And what was interesting was that this paper down the bottom here actually asked people which one of these they preferred without telling them whether it was computer-generated or uh, human-generated. And uh, it was a bit of an even tie, um, but there was strong um, interest in the computer-generated version because it was so factual and it didn't really... uh, it didn't really layer another layer of explanation on it. It just, it just wrote out the facts in a rather nice and neat uh, way. Now, Automated Insights are not the only uh, company doing this. There's um, uh, a company called Narrative Science. They work with Forbes. And if you've ever read Forbes, they do these... Qu- it's a real nausea, this. If you're a financial journalist, you have to take all of the big companies' quarterly reports and write a little bit of text about them. <sighs> God, it takes ages, you know. Um, So it's now written automatically on the basis of the numbers. And there's a British company, I think, called Aurea, which does the same thing. Um, So the three zones where you might expect this to be used are weather. It will be cloudy tomorrow with upward temperatures of this and that. Uh, Sports and financial. A rather uh, rather interesting area. And this stuff is with you now, okay? You have probably read already some computer-generated, um, automated-generated text. So, at this point, what usually happens, um, particularly if you're at a literary university like mine, um, somebody will pop up and say, oh, 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 no, well, yes, this is a very low level of creativity, very mundane, you know. Uh, when will anyone write a sonnet? Ha, 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 ha. You know, um, well, there we go. There's the sonnet. Um, so, this is a... Um, uh, from a paper called "Shall I Compare Thee to a Machine-Written Sonnet?" <laughs> um, and I should explain uh, how this is uh, now. I I'll leave it. I, I am highly unpoetic and prosaic, uh, gentlemen. So I, I'm not really in a position to tell you yet whether this is a good sonnet. Um, but let me give you some information. The way this is usually uh, assessed, and the way these systems are often assessed, is something called a Turing test. A Turing test is where uh, we uh, we don't reveal whether the source of the information is a computer or a human. And if uh, humans cannot tell the difference between the human-generated output and the automatic-generated output by some sort of vote, we assume that we have passed the Turing test. Okay? And Turing tests are very con- they're very, they're quite controversial. I mean, people don't like them for various reasons. They, they raise a whole load of questions like, who should be in the jury? You know, should it be experts or non-experts? Interesting question. When you're talking about creativity, um, and do we really have to have a vote on this? It's not very precise, is it? And how big should the vote be? And should there be a margin of you know? Well, those of us who are living through public votes know all about the hassle of of interpreting public votes. Um, so slightly problematic. Nevertheless, there is a Turing test for sonnets, and um, it's called Poetics. Uh, I think it runs every year, and this is the win. This system is the winner of Poetics uh, twenty. 18 and it uses the two standard technologies at the moment, which are word embeddings. So that's a neat way of getting words into uh, collections of words actually into a set of about 300 numbers. And then it uses a whole load of um, machine learning um, and then you drive it backwards. So you put some noise into this thing or you put a a keyword. In this case, the the test was given a word, uh, a prompt you had to write a sonnet and of course there's a human having to do this as well so you have to slow everything down otherwise it's totally obvious that uh, there's a human involved because a human can't write sonnets as quickly as a, as a computer um, so you slow them all down then you give them back to your ex- expert panel and the expert panel says oh I can't tell the difference now I don't actually know poetics isn't very clear on whether it was an expert or inexpert panel here uh, and they're also not clear on okay, they won the test, but by how much? I, 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 but my assumption would be, from what I've read about this, that the there is a substantial number of pe- humanity that would believe that this was an acceptable sonnet. Quick straw poll here. Who finds this an acceptable sonnet? Oh, none of you. <laughs> One or two brave people are prepared to admit, I think it's okay, Um the only thing I would say which is a bit of a fix if you read the paper is the authors of the paper decided what the title should be after writing the summit so um I, I can't help feeling that the title sort of cues you up to give all sorts of um uh hidden sort of semiotic and sort of secret meanings to, to the thing which makes it seem very profound um anyway It passes the test. Now, I was sort of speculating as to how I could show you these models working uh, in action. And I think the easiest way to do that is to take a really, really simple model, a model that actually isn't very good. And it's just based on three or four characters. And what you do is we're just going to chuck loads and loads of text at it of a particular type. And then we'll run it backwards and see what it generates. And uh, you'll see that there are some parameters you can fiddle with which are basically the adventurousness of the model. So if the model is very unadventurous, it tends to just repeat stuff that it's seen before. And if it's quite adventurous, then it will has the capacity to make up stuff that it hasn't seen before. And I was thinking, oh, I better do this. And then I was delighted to discover that the New Yorker had done this already. So the New Yorker is a you know, hu- humorous magazine based in the USA and the source text that they had picked for this was president trump's speeches so well what an excellent source that is i find president trump's speeches quite challenging linguistically anyway so uh let's let's see how they did <laughs>
1: You, all of you, they are donating to the problem. I don't want to do it. I don't know what they don't know, what they don't know. That the assumption that we don't know, that the best members of the prison, and there are supposed to be a lot of them, to be a little bit because I don't want it. I don't want to be a little bit this country. I mean, it was a nice person. We want to put the White House, I mean when you get the hell, the bad guys is not going to be asking do it for the world. We've got to the firewall, that's what they do. I mean, we have to do it for the country. I want to renegotiate NAFTA. And they say they are tired of the speech is a very international debate. And they were supposed to have such great buildings. They are going to let them something that we don't know the pressure that we will start winning again. I will uphold out every single conservative for the Friends and the labeling radical Islamic terrorism. When I see the money of the country that are tough and probably going to start a problem. It's not such a great state. And all of the places and the whole tax people and we have no choice. It's a strength. You want to do the Raz's obligation with the special interest for discuss and the promate that re reached the top people getting the smart immigrations? We will be in the time. I will say and change anything. I would have never had a victory. <laughs> And we will build Brutal Energy Cut into a much better home. It's a movement toward the beautiful legal scams and better share. And it was a jiggly deal. And I don't think they're never worth in the middle deal to be put to Mexico. It's to Wally. I have a pay. You don't even get 1.6 trillion deletion and... Millions of dollars. I mean, I and illegal immigrants. They're scared, I promise. In the prison way, our energy revolution plan for my friendly and deportant. And you're not going to be disqualified. <laughs> we have said that. I surprised it she doesn't take to you, guy. Believe me. Now I love But I hear for whore. I'm a king of terror The 20 years, but let prevent these vast learned people procrucied puri of the Bassett than Obama. I prickwally through. It's last year, it should arguing the turn I am proposing. Remission corruption. I am going to work with us. Every year that prep agarity has died in a big lie. Thank you. Thank all of you.
0: to answer the last question there is a a great big chain on youtube where i found that video which just does most people think that um the increasingly demented version level five sounds best closest to mr trump so the point was it's quite it's captured his speech patterns quite effectively i would say and i probably am heavily influenced by the brilliant imitation um and you you can see that difficulty with that particular system is it's only using quite a short window so these these spoof words like uh, what were they? Uh, Toali, um, one of my favourite words. J- uh, jingly deal. I also, I'm, I'm always wary of jingly deals myself, and I'm going to look out for them in future. Um, uh, you know, are, are possible. The systems we were looking at before that operated at a word level, so it, they they're choosing words from a, a word net, so it, it stops them picking uh, weird words. Okay, so. That was a quick review of the state of the art in linguistic arts, and um, I'm not sure you were agreeing with me, just looking at your faces. But I would say there's quite there's quite impressive uh, performance there. There are restricted domains where it looks to me as though the computer is pretty much indistinguishable from a human. There are the, the full domain as we've got some way to go. So. Um, computers have not yet written uh, Harry Potter. They have written some novels. Um, In the 1970s, there was a brief uh, flurry of novel writing. They were all rule-based and uh, terrible, terrible reads. I mean, you couldn't read them for very long. So, now, visual arts. Well, visual arts um, is a nice illustration of the sort of state of technology. Uh, Visual arts, of course, map rather nicely onto machine learning systems. Machine learning systems are really designed to work with rectangular grids of numbers that's what and so that's what a pixelated um, image creates and uh, we I talked about this a few lectures ago talking about uh, computer vision machines that see and if we sort of spool back to um, yeah, probably 2000s again that we were into a position where what uh, computer scientists were were building tools that were essentially controlled by digital artists, humans. So you would say, well, oh, that's an interesting effect. Yes, I think I can make something of that. Um, and um, I did this. We, we ran a, a nice company that made um, uh, converted images into painterly effects. Uh, quite, quite common. There were some very bad ones. There was a very bad sort of pointillism effect. So that was trying to imitate the paintings of, of Sura um, and it was deeply unimpressive. Uh, we worked on something called the Civ, which was a, a scale space processing system. I talked about it in previous lectures. And uh, much to my surprise, um, I was watching a, a, a film called um, Wimbledon, which came out quite a few years ago. And um, somewhat to my surprise, a sort of very deep surprise, because they hadn't paid us any royalties, um, I saw the effect. Being used, so I'll just show you the sort of thing which you'll be quite familiar with. So this is the the credits of uh, this this rather what is now rare rather rare film, uh, Wimbledon. <laughs> We all start off in life with a dream, don't
1: we? Um,
0: So, painterly effects used by a digital artist. In that case, I assume they were worried about the identity of the audience. They probably didn't have permission. So, that was sort of phase one. And phase two, uh, which I'm going to talk about now, is the business of trying to copy or replicate artists. And um, that's a very interesting... uh, area again i think you you, so you would probably think the first the thing i was just talking about the creativity there is really it's mundane in the sense that i hate to say that about my own work but it it was although it was the algorithms were terribly complicated the the thing that made good pictures wasn't the algorithms it was the people putting them together okay and i know this because we had a number of digital artists working for us and the the truth was that some were very much better than others. Um, so op- option two, if you like, is, well, can we mix in equivalent uh, effects from well-known artists? So, for example, if we took um, you know, a photograph of my dog, Algernon, um, looking, I think, frankly surprised after he's had his hair cut, um, and you were a sort of uh, admirer of i don't know umberto Boccioni, the uh the italian uh futurist uh, this this painting is called the the dynamism of the cyclist i think you can see the cyclist and you can see the sort of painterly effects so what you'd like to do is you'd like to take a photograph of algernon uh, as if Boccioni was in the room and there you go okay so this is not too bad is it um and um you can go to, um, what is it, InstaArt, I think. Uh, by the way, on the transcript, you'll find a um, list of all of these uh, references. So you, can, you can chase them down if you want. You can go to InstaArt and you can, as I did, upload my photograph. And this is a bit of machine learning that has learnt how Bocchioni painted and it's created a rather attractive uh, version. And there's a number of styles from which you can choose. You know, So if you don't like Boccioni. I do, but if you don't like if you, you choose Manet and you'll get a Manet. By the way, the, the, the last phase of the instant art um, business proposition is, is fascinating. I, I do recommend going to their website. They will actually paint it for you. So a real artist will take this and actually paint it for you in, in oils or pastels or gouache or whatever you choose, I think. Um, and the way this is done is... A village in China which in, consi- appears to consist entirely of human artists painting things to order. I, I think I read 10,000 artists. It seems rather incredible, doesn't it? And they'll, they'll do it in a week. So um, there you go. If you ever need a quick retirement present, they, that's, the, that's the solution. Now, how, how this works is a bit of a challenge because I said something that was really... Um, I skipped over it very lightly, but it's a real problem. Learn the work of an artist. That, that's quite... Um, tricks them because artists even prolific artists don't really produce enough uh, art to learn I mean these sort of the sort of learning that we're used to doing is tens of thousands of millions of images well there are not uh tens of thousands of Bocchione paintings maybe that's the the basis of their rarity so what can you do so um the it's quite clever what what people do And uh, I've tried to illustrate it here in this rather complicated diagram, which I'm going to talk you through. So what they did was this. They said, well, let's take one of the standard deep learning neural networks that recognise objects. Nothing to do with paintings. It was trained on an object database, I think. So what they they made a list of objects that a six-year-old might be able to name. And they took loads and loads of photographs of those things and they slung them into their neural network and trained it to recognise those things. So, yes, there is a car in that photograph. Yes, there's a bed. You know, those, those, those are the labels. And you were around, as described in previous lectures, and you learn this thing. And the network they use, if you're interested, is one called VGG. You can download it yourself, you know, download it and run it. It's very easy to, 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 use and, to use and run. And then they said, ah, oh, right, OK. Um, well, the high level of this network is all semantic stuff to do with recognising objects. But the low level is all to do with extracting um, features that might go into helping the recognition. So they said, well, let's feed our sort of target image over here through this thing over here, and we'll also feed our target um, painting. Is that Kandinsky? I, I, I should have... You think it's Van Gogh? Oh, it's, it's Van Gogh, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's Van Gogh. Um, and what we'll get out here are more and more object level stuff and what we get down here is more sort of painterly texture level stuff likewise down here we've got all the fine level detail and up here we've got the coarse level detail well that's that's not unreasonable given the way we we do object recognition uh computer object recognition usually finds these what they call feature interest points you agglomerate these interest points and say well yeah it looks like a house then you know i've got enough of those features to Be a house. It doesn't do it systematically by thinking about it, it's all done in the in the training. So then the next thing they do is right, I'm going to create a random image here. Fill it with random noise. And now I'm going to develop a learning algorithm which adjusts that image such that it looks like it's painted by, in my case, Bocchioni. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to demand that all of these low level features, they low level stuff here they have the same statistics as a bocchioni and what i'm going to demand is up here they have the same level of statistics as the object detector so it's quite a complex bit of training but that gets you around the business of having to learn stuff what you're doing is you're adjusting the input until the output looks the the sort of and the analysis bit looks sort of convincing um so really rather neat uh trick and um you know quite quite Impressive, and I think it gives reasonable impressions. But I suspect there are still people in the audience who are sort of crossing their arms and saying, "Well, it's not really creativity, is it? Mimicry isn't creativity. You know, it's just just a neat neat trick." I mean, what we really want is a uh, some sort of artificial intelligence computer system that can generate a painting from scratch that was not in the minds of the human creator, and then we need concrete evidence that that painting is of value and you know, it's got some creative value that would be the ultimate test right so the ultimate test would be build a computer system that can print out a painting and we'll take it to Christie's and we'll flog it and it makes some money okay uh, well this is uh, a painting called Portrait of Edmund uh, Bellamy it was indeed sold at Christie's the estimated uh, price for this was uh, ten thousand dollars um, it actually made $425,000, and it's completely computer-generated. It's the first of its kind. A uh, very interesting uh, system that creates it. It's created by a collective of Parisian artists who call themselves Obvious Art. And um, if you, they have a couple of YouTube videos and quite a good website, which I recommend. The YouTube videos are, uh, uh, they are subtitled, but they're, they're all French and they speak in French. But it's pretty obvious what they're saying um, and very interesting. Now, I don't know, what do you think of this painting? I mean, I think it's rather... Uh, I uh, I come from the University of East Anglia, which has the Sainsbury Centre for Visual Art, and in there is an unrivaled collection of Francis Bacon uh, paintings. And so I sort of find myself thinking, drawing comparisons with, with Bacon here. It looks a bit Baconish, uh, And Bacons are incredibly valuable at the moment. Somebody estimated that... We had enough bacons to actually rebuild the whole university if we sold them, um, which, uh, given the state of the buildings, is tempting. Um, uh, and there's a family of these that are being created by their neural network system. So the way they do it is something called a GAN, okay a generative adversarial network. And here's a quote from one of the artists, Stroke business people, Stroke computer scientists who created. Uh, this um, I just pick out a couple of things he says we feed the system with a data set of fifteen thousand portraits painted between the 14th century and the 20th. I have a suspicion that fifteen thousand isn 't quite enough um, so I will I'll hazard a guess that they also fed it with something else. by the way, this is probably a good point to, to point out that an awful lot of this work it takes place in the commercial sector and it is not very obvious sometimes precisely how these systems work. I, I'm often having to infer from pretty scant literature uh, what they probably did in order to do this. So what, what my thinking at the moment is that I would like to demonstrate as much as I can take the state of the art to you. But the state of the art is mostly in the commercial sector. So I'm having to make some guesses as to precisely how these systems uh, work on the basis of what I know the state of the art to be in the literature so uh, let, that's a, just a slight caveat on some of my facts there the generator makes a new image and the discriminator tries to spot the difference between a human made image and the one created by the generator the aim is to fool the discriminator and think new images are real-life portraits Then we have a result okay so it looks like this that would be a typical GAN um, and well Jan LeCun who's one of the great fathers of deep learning has saying great things about it so um, he knows what he's talking about so it's probably impressive so the idea is this which is we will have this great big set of real data here and this is a network that's designed to tell whether the thing here is real or not so it learns what real is and it says is this real or fake that's that thing there And then what we're doing here is we're making up images. We start with some noise. This is another neural network, right, that's being trying to train to produce these things. Okay, so you train this one and this one simultaneously. So obviously, what first happens is this is untrained, it produces complete rubbish here. This thing has an incredibly easy job and goes, ha, rubbish. And then we feed back and we do that, you know, a couple of million times. Takes, I should imagine, three or four weeks of continuous processing using the biggest and most powerful cpus you can gather and there comes a point when this thing generates something that fools the discriminator at that point you've got art it was random noise in it was a painting that came out right that's so that's my definition of artists by the way artists are people who take random noise in and they produce art at the output um and uh If you can't tell it apart from the other genre, then I decree it to be art. Okay, So none of Marcel Duchamp and all that stuff I I put to one side. I don't do conceptual art here. We're doing uh, figurative uh, figurative art. And uh, there's the result. And, uh, well, do have a look at their website. These GANs, Generative Adversarial Networks, they are hot stuff. Um, And probably the sort of benchmark um, example of a GAN is generating photorealistic human faces. So um, a lot of this work has been done by a, a company called NVIDIA. Uh, NVIDIA used to make graphics cards for computers, and that's what they were they're set up to do. Um, it, it turned out that these new deep learning systems have incredibly difficult computational demands, and with a little bit of uh, software engineering you can re-engineer them to run on these graphics cards which were very efficient at doing these uh, multiply accumulates so the early uh, uh, deep learning networks that you could all download ran on nvidia cards so very rapidly nvidia became a artificial intelligence company because they were selling far more of these graphic they, they didn't realize it at first they think that's very weird we used to only sell them to odd gamers you know stuck in darkened rooms uh you know delivered to small garrets in places and suddenly we're we're selling a thousand of these things to um great big government labs what the hell's going on well they were being used for uh, for ai and now they work in that area themselves um so what i'm going to show you is a video of human face generation i think it's got some it's got some, uh, some subtitles so you can work out what's going on. But let me just emphasise one point which is said in the video. You are not going to look in this video at a single real human face. Okay? Every single face you're looking at in this video is made up by a GAN. with that yeah it's cool isn't it uh slightly creepy Um, so the next time you see a photograph um, it might not be quite what you think there is a stunt by the way there is a trick for spotting synthetic humans which I'm afraid time is pressing so I can't tell you what it is but uh, but it is well there is a well-known artifact that allows you to spot a synthetic human uh, but but it will soon be fixed OK, so um, I want to briefly talk about music now and uh, music composition. The, the benchmark system for doing this is IARMUS, which is a compositional cluster based at the University of Malaga. It has a commercial variant called Melomics, uh, and uh, that has made it a little bit tricky, actually, to work out quite what IARMUS does uh, because it's all shrouded in commercial secrecy. And... Um, I, what I can tell you is that the first I Amis album has been recorded it was recorded so I Amis writes the score and the London Symphony Orchestra were involved in recording it and you can go out and buy the by the album uh, it's quite avant-garde so um, my rather bourgeois taste doesn't really appeal to me at all uh, but Malomix is designed to appeal to people like me I was playing it to our sound crew at the back who said oh yeah it sounds just like computer generated music to me um well let's have a you can have a quick listen <laughs> but um, i'm not entirely sure that i would spot that immediately as a as a human Uh, a lot of these music systems rely on something called a genetic algorithm and uh, i just thought i'd take a brief moment to explain how that works it's quite fun it's a model of the way uh, uh, animal genetic selection works so what the first thing you do is you decide on a mapping between your score or bit of your score to some big long binary number usually so there's a bit of art in doing that, but the idea is that there's going to be a unique map between the score and this long binary number. So, for example, you might say you know, the time signature is mapped to this bit of the code here, and then the first bar is mapped to this code, and so on, and so on, and so on. And that forms a population. So you might have thousands of those, you know, tens of thousands of those, and they're all rubbish because you initialise them randomly. You know, so they all sound like complete garbage for you to play them out but that's the population of compositions. They're just big, big random numbers. The next thing you work on is a fitness function. And the fitness function says, this sounds good, this sounds not so good. It doesn't have to be fantastic, but it just needs to be something that says, if you give me a binary number, I can convert that into a score, and I can give a, a, a score as to whether I think that is good music. Okay? So it's a bit like a compositional aesthetic the next thing we're going to do is we are going to... Just ignore this for the time being. What we're going to do here is we're going to, in this box, uh, we've still got a population of compositions, but I'm now going to select the fittest of those. So I'm going to say, uh, those, those compositions, they're, they're too uh, poor. Um, kill them. Get rid of them. Okay, So that's, that's survival of the fittest at this point here. And then this is mutation, where we breed some of these uh, together. And produce a new set and we evaluate the fitness and so on and we just do that million billion million million billion times using great big computer cluster and at some point the you you listen to the best composition and the compo- the, the, the human goes oh i like that one stop job done now is that where the creativity is because um, there is creativity in working out this mapping there's no creativity here in, in sort of humdrum terms. It's just hammering around an optimization loop. Genetic algorithms are very commonly used for difficult optimization problems. There's tremendous creativity in thinking about the fitness function. And um, if you read the references on uh, Iarmus, you can see that the guy who developed it is a professional composer and pianist, and he has, a, I would say, a very well-developed sense of what he likes in music, and he's done his best to put that into the fitness function. Okay, so that's the state of the art in composition. Now, just for a bit of fun, I mean I should say, you know, um, we're only talking about music there. You, you can actually, I haven't, what about words? Well, you can go back, we can scroll back and use the same technology I was using for words, of course, and create some lyrics if you like. Um, this isn't quite the same level as creativity as, um, as IAMUS. I mean, IARMUS is the, sort of the pinnacle of musical achievement. Um, but if you fancy a bit of lyrics, let's just take, say, um, hotel and restaurant reviews from Yelp. Yelp is a big American uh, uh, site. Americans are very free in giving their opinions on um, on everything, They're a very hybridly service oriented culture. So, uh, I don't know about you. I never write honest reviews on Yelp. I, I always worry that someone come, might come and pee in my soup. You know, so I. I uh, always very guarded, uh, but they're not. They write extremely um, positive uh, or negative things, and so we can feed all of that into one of our generators, and we can generate um, a nice little uh, tune. And thank you to James Bull, who's um, the technical director here, for pointing this out. Um
1: And I was very disappointed with the staff I ordered shots of freedom and I ordered shots of wine. Seems like they were out.
0: rather appealing isn't it okay it's just a bit of fun um, now one final observation um, most popular record companies have a division called the a&r division artist and recording division They're enormously powerful and they look for hits um, could you automate that process asked uh, music x-ray who are a company that did this this is ben novak um, ben novak wrote a song called turn your car around uh, which was later recorded by Lee Ryan from Blue, if you are familiar with uh, uh, that. And it was a top twenty hit. As a result of this, it was brought to his attention by Music X Ray, and uh, Sony um, Sony Records um, took it on and, um, and promoted it. Um, it's really and it relies on the fact that a lot of pop music is somewhat uh, formulaic. Um, I'm not sure I've got time to play this to you, but let's just
1: And laughing inside about kicking your ass and you stand up if you don't then you're just down
0: quite catchy I would say, and uh, I think one of the first songs to have been uh, spotted as a hit by a computer. so where does this leave artists well there's obviously good reason to have some panic because um some of the standard artistic practices are being automated and uh, I quite like this quote, um, you know, which is sort of really rather establishes the, the anxiety that's present in uh, current artists with computational uh, creativity. Perhaps I should reveal that it dates from 1850 uh, from the painter Eugène Delacroix. Uh, so this is obviously an old concern. And then I should probably should also pivot us a bit into um, thinking about where this automated production of art and journalism might take us this is a quote from uh, 1984 by um, George Orwell who developed a machine called the versificator and versificator produces rubbishy newspapers containing almost nothing except sport crime astrology sensational five cent novelettes, films oozing with sex and sentimental songs, which are composed entirely by mechanical means. Well I've certainly covered some of those, ladies and gentlemen, during the course of this lecture. So we could indeed be entering a new generation of, of of Tat using some of this. And it neatly pivots me into an issue that I am quite interested in. In this season we've been talking about how information science leads to new developments, but I haven't been talking about the impact of that on the digital state and that is what i would like to do in the next uh, series of lectures we're going to talk about biometrics and social media and digital learning and digital healthcare and digital crime and the cashless society so um, if i can briefly encourage you uh, to make a date for late october which is when we start the series again that would be very welcome other than that